0: Certainly an appropriate song that we just sang as we talk about our God in heaven. As we consider the cross again this evening from the perspective of the one who instituted that plan. The one who loved mankind enough, who created each of us. Who had created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden with very simple directions and simple commands to keep. Who had seen His creation rebel against Him. To disobey His commandments and disobey His word and His instruction. And The God in heaven who had all justification and power to simply destroy man because of His disobedience. But rather chose to institute a plan of grace and mercy reaffirming His holiness and His perfectness and everything that man cannot be. Tonight, as we endeavor to look at the cross from a different perspective, we're going to look at it from the perspective of God the Father. Now, we've talked about the cross from human perspectives this week. We talked about the cross from angelic perspectives last night and looking at Satan as an angel and His misunderstanding and lack of knowledge concerning what was happening at the cross that day. But this evening, we're going to study about the One who knew exactly what was happening. Who knew everything that was going to happen. How it was going to play out from the beginning to the end. The One that there was no mystery for to be solved. For it was His plan that was being played out on this earth. First thing we have to understand is in Matthew chapter 27, as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, one of the last sayings that He cries out from that cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we read that passage, we could conclude and have in our mind that God had turned His back on the cross. That God couldn't look at His Son as His Son was becoming sin and taking on the form of sin that He Himself had never committed, for He was bearing the sins of ourselves. And He was becoming that sin, and in becoming that sin, God could not have any relationship with His only begotten Son. And therefore, God turned His back on His Son, as His Son stood there, hung there between heaven and earth, to die. Tonight, I want to look at it from a different perspective. The first thing I believe we really need to understand is the justice and righteousness of God. That God is a just God. And every wrong has to be righted. There's not anything that can be left that's not accounted for with God. And when we hear the word justice, oftentimes we think of it in in human terms. We think of criminal justice. We think of terms such as the Justice Department of our government that's responsible for executing and ensuring that there are just causes that are handled and taken care of. When someone violates the laws of our country or our state, there is a Justice Department. It's their job to ensure that those crimes are paid for appropriately in man's eyes. We think of the term social justice. And that there is a sense of equality and fairness and all those kind of ideas and where those things come from. But the problem with man's system of justice is that it's imperfect, it's arbitrary, and in many cases it's unfair. And when you hear the word justice, oftentimes these are the definitions we attribute to it. But tonight we need to look at the justice of God. The 97th Psalm in verse 1 says, "...the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of the isles be glad, clouds and darkness surround Him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne." The throne of God is founded upon these two principles, justice and righteousness. And God's justice is perfect. God's judgments are perfect. Perfect. His laws, His commandments, the things that He would have us to do, His righteousness is perfect. He's never wrong because He's God. And when we think about justice and righteousness, there's no better display of that than what happened as Jesus hung on the cross. God's justice was being satisfied. And justice isn't just something God doles out or God attributes to someone, justice is what His whole throne is founded upon. And justice is the idea that He is not a respecter of persons. And as He looks at humanity and every single individual, He sees the same thing. And as He looks at us tonight, He sees a race who has fallen. But a race that He has given grace and mercy to, through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, God's justice and righteousness are His nature. It's not just something He does. You know, sometimes we can behave righteously, can't we? Even though that might not be in our nature. God's nature is justice and righteousness. Revelation 15 and verse 3 through 4 says, "...they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints." Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. God is holy. And in that holiness, He executes justice, judgment, and righteousness perfectly. He never makes a mistake. Have you ever had a day where you felt like you never made a mistake? I've yet to have one of those. But maybe you've had one of those days where you like, man, I did everything just right today. It worked out for me. I've never felt that way. But even if you could do it for a day, could you do it for two? Now, we're pushing it there, aren't we? Or three or four. And we understand, but God is always perfect. Everything He does is right. He never makes a mistake. And we saw that perfectness, that perfection manifested in human form in Jesus Christ. You see, God promises mankind that we will reap what we sow. Galatians 6 verse 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever thou shalt sow, that shall you also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So God's system of justice was very plainly taught. He says, you reap what you sow." If you sow to the flesh and you live in a carnal way with a carnal mindset, guess what? That's all you're going to reap. But if you will change and you will seek those things that are spiritual, you'll be led by the Spirit of God, you'll fight that spiritual warfare that we've talked about all this week, then guess what you're going to reap? You're going to reap life everlasting. And this world is not the end for you. For you have a home with God. But rest assured, the righteousness and justice of God requires that you reap what you sow. God requires that. He also requires justification. Romans chapter 5 verse 16 through 18 says, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And I got to thinking, what's it mean to be justified? You ever thought about that? What's it mean for something to be justified? This was about the best example I could come up with. I showed my boys this picture and they said, what in the world is that? <laughs> I said, well, that's a ledger book. What's a ledger book? <laughs> I said, well, you know, when mom and dad go out and, and we write checks to pay for something, and they said, what's a check? <laughs> thought you just had these little cards you swiped and money just magically appeared everywhere. And I had to explain to them, I said, you know, we have to justify our accounts. We have to sit down every month, and what do we have to do? We have to look at the expenditures that we've made. And if you're not careful, what can happen? You can end up with a lack of justification. And you end up what? In debt. And you end up upside down where you don't have enough money in your bank account to pay for what? The checks that you wrote. And I figured out you can't even float a check anymore. And I said, they said, float a check. What does that mean? I said, man, I'm getting old. <laughs> we have to educate our children about these things. But I remember times early in our marriage that I wouldn't be getting paid till Friday, and it was Thursday. We needed a few groceries. So guess what? We'd go and we'd buy those groceries, and I'd write, do you have money? No, I got a check. <laughs> and I'd write that check knowing that the next day money was going to be in my account that could what? Cover the cost of what I had just purchased. And therefore, I would be justified. You try to do that today, you're going to get a $35 charge on your account because you're going to be overdrawn. Because they don't do that anymore. And we think about justification, here's what it is. You and I have incurred a debt. You and I, through our sin, stand in the sight of God guilty and we owe a payment for our sins. And God requires that that payment be made. Why? Because he's just. And everything in that column that we have built up for ourselves that we've gone around charging up to our account, God looks at it and says, "You know what? That has to be I can't just overlook it. I can't just turn a blind eye to it. You know why? Cuz I'm just. I'm perfect. And every one of those wrongs has to be paid for by someone. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ paid our debt and therefore gave us the ability in the sight of God to be what? To be justified. That when Christ and when our Father in heaven looks at our life, what he sees is the payment of the blood of Christ, covering the sin debt that you and I rightfully owe. See, God also demands righteousness. The eleventh Psalm verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, his countenance beholds the upright. Romans eight and verse three says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and account of sin, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. In us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, the old law, the mosaical law, the Old Testament law that God had delivered to His people, it could never do what? It could have never never satisfy the debt of sin. Those sacrifices that they made continually, all that did with the sin was what? Push it down the road a little bit. It bought them time, in essence, with God. And God allowed that. God ordered that. That's what God desired. But that law was never meant to make men perfect or to justify them. But it rolled that debt forward until when? Until God did pay the debt. It's awesome to think about the idea of forgiveness. And here's why. If I'm truly forgiven, then someone else pays my debt. I don't have to pay it. For instance, Brother Zach lets me borrow his new driver that he just got, which I'm sure he'd never do, especially if he saw me swing a golf club. But let's say he lets me borrow that new tailor-made driver that he's got that he's so proud of. And he says, yeah, you can use it. I said, all right. And I take it out for a round, and I get up there, and I hit the greatest drive of my life. Man, I love this club. But then about the tenth hole, I swing, and I dip it into the dirt, and the shaft breaks, and there's the head of the driver laying there. And I'm saying, oh, no. (laughs) Because guess what I've just done? I've just taken something that was his, and what have I done with it? I've destroyed it. I've broken it. So then after my round, I go back to Zach and I say, Hey man, I'm sorry, um, but I broke your driver. And he says, That's all right. I forgive you. But you need to pay me 300 bucks so I can replace my driver. Does that sound like forgiveness? Forgiveness would be him saying, Hey Chase, I forgive you and guess what? I'll I'll just go buy me a new one. I'll be alright. And I won't bring it up anymore. See, true forgiveness is when he's willing to pay the debt that I owe. I broke the driver. It was my responsibility to pay that debt. But forgiveness isn't him saying, I forgive you, but then making me pay the penalty. (laughs) True forgiveness is him being willing to take that cost onto himself. When you think about the forgiveness of God, God had nothing to do with our sin. All of that is because of our own will. And we accumulate that sin and we commit that sin. And God is right to require payment from us for that sin. But because of His love and His mercy, you know what He says? I'll forgive you. And when I forgive you, that means you don't have to pay the penalty anymore because I'll pay that for you. That's true forgiveness. That means I need to think about that the next time someone comes to me asking for forgiveness. Am I really forgiving them? Or am I then making them incur the payment for whatever it is that they've done against me? If I am truly forgiving them, I am willing to pay that price for them, just as our God was. You see, only God is truly righteous. John seventeen and verse twenty five, as Jesus prays there, he says, "O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and there have they have known, these have known that you sent me." You know what this also shows us is that Jesus Himself was righteous. As He cried out to His Father, He said, Oh, righteous Father, but Jesus Himself was righteous. You know why? Because He was without sin. He was able to live this life that you and I have to live, that we fall into temptation and we give in to sin day in and day out. He was able to live this life and walk these paths and never commit sin. He understands what it's like to be tempted. He understands what it's like to deal with despair. He understands what it's like to be depressed and saddened by the circumstances of life. Yet He never gave in to sin. He knows what it's like to be tempted in a moment of weakness. But He fought that temptation and He didn't give in. And He was found without sin. He was righteous in everything that He did. He was perfect, just like His Father But God still requires that payment. And the payment for sin is not something we can pay off ourselves. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. God has been offended. God's law has been broken. And a just God... Requires payment. That's what leads us to the cross. Because I want you to know something tonight. Our God in heaven saw everything that played out as Jesus hung there on the cross. And Jesus paid a debt that you could not pay. Anything man could dream up to try to satisfy the debt that God has charged us with would be futile. It's impossible to do it. First Peter 2 and verse 24 says, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. God looks at us and says, the only thing that will satisfy the debt that you have charged up to your own account is the death of Jesus Christ. And you think about that payment. You think about what it took for God's justice and righteousness to be satisfied. It was a very expensive price that was paid. And God looked down at us in forgiveness and said, I'm willing to pay that price for you. And He was willing to forgive. But I want you to understand your salvation was not free, it was free to us. But Jesus paid that price. And as He hung there on the cross, your sins were there. My sins were there. And it's by that cross that we have His righteousness and His justification laid to our account. So that we truly can be free from sin. Isaiah 53 and verse 11 says, He shall see the trail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. God's justice required payment and Jesus paid that. It was the only thing that was valuable enough to take away our sins and justify us in his sight. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into the grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He sits there and tells us that we have peace with God. You have the ability to have peace with God, even though you know you've sinned. You know you've violated God's will. You know you've broken His law. And in essence, you've broken His heart. Because He looks down at you as a child that He loves dearly, and He says, if you'll live this way... Guess what? Your life will be better, but guess what? We break his commandments. We violate his law. We commit sin. And that puts us in a place where we cannot have peace with God. And only through Christ can that problem be solved. What's it mean to have peace? Does our world have peace? We pray for peace, don't we? In the prayer this evening, Brother Tom prayed that our country's in a lot of turmoil. There's chaos. Wouldn't it be nice if we just had peace? Is that peace ever really going to exist on this earth? But you know what? I can have peace with God. I can have a relationship with God where He looks at me and He doesn't see my sin that causes me to be in opposition against Him. But instead, He sees the blood of Jesus and the payment for that sin that allows me to have a peaceful relationship with God. Do you desire that kind of relationship? The only way you can have it is through Jesus Christ and through His sacrifice and what He did on the cross. One thing I want us to remember... When we think about where was God at the cross? He was on the cross. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 of that chapter says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about that for a second. God could have saved man any way that He wanted to. He could have allowed Himself to be satisfied with the blood of bulls and goats. He could have created a system to where you could do so many good works and be justified, but you know what those things would not bring? They wouldn't bring true justification because it would really be an affront to God's requirement of justice. Because those things would never satisfy the debt. So, guess what God said? They have a debt they can't pay. I'll pay it for you. And I'll crucify part of myself on a cross. You see, what happened that day was God, in the form of Christ, who had taken on that flesh, put Himself in your place. And we have to recognize what happened that day. That God allowed Himself to feel physical death for you. God the Son was on the cross making an offering to God. He was the sacrifice. Remember, John the Baptist saw him coming and approaching him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Did Jesus know He was the Lamb? Did Jesus know He was the sacrifice? Did Jesus understand His role and His mission and what He had to do? Did He struggle with that to some degree because of the flesh that He was in? and the full-on human experience that he wanted to have? As he prayed in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me. That wasn't him saying, Father, I don't want to fulfill your will. Father, I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. He was saying, I don't want to suffer. Because that cup that he was about to bear wasn't going to be fun to go through. And as he pled to his father, he was in that position pleading with his father because he humbled himself. Not because he had to. Not because God was making him. It was because he chose to. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, because of his willingness to do that for you and for me. And as Jesus hung there on the cross, he was making an offering to God. That's interesting to me. And here's why Does God receive sacrifices? Did God receive sacrifices from men? You know, God commanded sacrifices to be made in the Old Testament, didn't He? And as men and women made those sacrifices, did He accept those? Go back to Cain and Abel. It came time for them to what? Make a sacrifice. The Bible says that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground, but Abel brought of the firstling of his flock and the fat thereof, and they made an offering to the Lord. And what did the Lord say? The Lord said He had respect. Unto who? Unto Abel's offering. That means what? He accepted that. All throughout the Old Testament, as men and women made sacrifices, guess what? God would receive those. God would accept those. Which means God had to be there to receive those sacrifices. Genesis chapter 8. As Noah and his family come off the ark with the animals... It says, Noah built an altar unto the Lord. He took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. Think about what that's saying. Noah and his family are making a sacrifice to God. They're making an offering. And God recognized that, didn't He? And He said it was a sweet-smelling savor. And you may wonder, why are we talking about this? Here's why. As Jesus hung on that cross, guess what He was doing? He was making an offering to God. The father saw the sacrifice of his son. God had to watch that. And God watched as a holy father, his only begotten hanging there, but he also watched as a just God who required payment for sin. Isaiah 53, we've talked a lot about this week, and there's a good reason why. Because it's a prophecy concerning what we focused on at the cross. Won't you notice a couple of phrases that we haven't talked much about this week? In verse 10, Isaiah writes, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. As we see Jesus hanging on the cross, as we look at that scene unfold, God looks and He sees it. And it pleases Him. <laughs> How you kids do that? Whatever. Mind blown. That's hard for me to reconcile in my mind. That I would look at my only son, if I only had one, but even I got three and I don't want to give any of them up. And as a fatherly perspective, I, I couldn't see my son suffering and dying for something he didn't do. It would be hard enough for me to see him die for something he did do. But he's hanging there innocent. Everyone knows it. I know it. And he's still there dying. The human side of me would struggle with that. And it would be even further for me to understand, you know what, that pleases me. That makes me happy. But I want you to understand why it pleased God. Because it did. It pleased God because that's the only way He could bring man back to Himself. That's the only thing that could allow Him back in communion with you and I. That's why it pleased Him. That's why He had to see it and watch it and receive that sacrifice that was being made. You say, why is that important? What did Jesus cry out as He cried out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, I've heard and I've even taught that as we look at that, what we're seeing is God turning His back on His Son because His Son was becoming sin. got another idea as we think about that phrase and what Jesus was suffering on the cross that day god had to watch he had to see the travail of his soul he had to see that the payment was made and that the debt would be satisfied And what we see when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's actually quoting the 22nd Psalm. Get your Bibles and turn to the 22nd Psalm. And I want us to understand something about the Jews. For all their faults and all the things that we judge them for, they knew the Scriptures. They could quote and quote the Scriptures. And I venture in my mind as Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In their minds, guess where they go? They go, that's the 22nd Psalm. That's the f- that's... And back then they didn't have chapters and verses, so they wouldn't have said, that's Psalm 22. They would have just recognized that's in the Psalms. And they would have been able to identify where that was, and they would have called your remembrance what the 22nd Psalm talked about. Even if they really didn't have a full understanding at that time, as we do, as we see the entirety of the Word of God revealed to us. Because what's the 22nd Psalm about? We say, well, it's about David crying out to God because of his sin. Go down to verse 7. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, the trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around." They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought to me into the dust of the earth. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet." I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. What's the 22nd Psalm about? It's about the cross. And as Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Could he be making a plea to those individuals, recognize what's happening here? I'm fulfilling that psalm and that prophecy. And you need to realize what you're doing. Now, could it have been he just felt totally forsaken in that human form because he was taking on our sins? Certainly. But God watched. God saw the sacrifice that was being made because it was His justice that had to be satisfied. And if God simply turned His back and forsook Him there and left Him alone to die, who received the sacrifice? Verse 31, the last verse in that Psalm 22. says, They shall come and shall declare His righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that He hath done this. See, in this prophecy of Jesus hanging on the cross, that they had no idea that that's what that was about at the time. The very last verse says, They will what? Declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. That there's something that this man is going to do for him and mankind. And what was it? It was fulfilling that law. It was fulfilling the plan of God that every sin would be paid for. That that debt would be totally justified. And the only one that could do it was this man. And as Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What was the last thing He said as He hung there on the cross? It's finished. It's finished. As the prophecy said, He will bring righteousness when He does this or when this is done. And what's Jesus say at the end of His life? It's done. It's played out. It's happened and the gift has been offered. What I want us to really think about and take away is God watched all that happen. Have you ever felt forsaken? Have you ever felt alone? I venture to say we all have to some degree or another. And Jesus in His human form, He felt forsaken. He felt alone. Because He was becoming something He had never experienced. He was becoming sin. But the holy, righteous, just God was there watching the entire time ensuring that the debt of your sin was paid for. And that God had to die that day for you and for me. Oh, what a Savior. Tonight, Jesus gives you an invitation to come. In Jesus' ministry, He talked about Himself being the water of life. He talked about Himself being the bread of life. He talked about Himself having the ability to take away your burdens and mine. And what allowed Him to do that was His willingness to sacrifice Himself and pay the debt that you and I could not pay. Jesus paid it all. There's not a sin you've committed... There's not a sin that you'll commit. There's not anything in your life that you could do that the blood of Jesus can't forgive. But you have to be willing to accept it. You have to put yourself at the foot of the cross and see that Savior and understand what was happening that day. As your God in heaven watched His only Son die in your place tonight if you need to accept that invitation of Jesus whether it be for baptism so that your sins would be washed away in that blood or whether it's in prayer that you would be reconciled to God God stands ready and willing to do whatever you ask of Him the debt's been paid the question is will you accept that gift and that offering and if you will tonight God can save you through the cross. And He'll pay your debt if you'll make it known by coming forward and having a seat while we stand and sing.